tonight is a two-part lesson, okay? Uh, so tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus, and tomorrow we're going to talk about Jesus. Tonight, we're going to talk about his humanity. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about his deity. So just so you know what's coming. Hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, who, this is, what do we call this right here? What do we call that? That's a cross. Oh, very good. Who, who died on that? Well, a lot of people, but one really counts, right? Jesus. So that's sort of like a bedrock for us as believers to say Jesus died on a cross. It is sort of amazing then to think that there are scholars, quote-unquote, who write books to the intent of proving that Jesus never existed. Sort of an amazing thought. So rather than deal with the claims that uh, Jesus isn't God or Jesus isn't fit to be a Savior, rather than deal with that, they just say he didn't exist at all. Sort of an amazing thought. And people follow it. People follow it. And they give their, their evidences, quote-unquote, and... Uh, and they give their spill, and they give their little spin on history, and, and so they live with this fact of belief that Jesus never existed. So, back in the days of C.S. Lewis, Lewis uh, developed what he called the trilemma. And so when talking about the person of Jesus, he would say, we have three options when we consider Jesus. He's either a liar, because he claimed to be God and he's not. He's a lunatic. He claimed to be God, and that's just because he was crazy. It's not his fault. Or he is the Lord. And those were, that's, what he, that's what he hinged a lot of his apologetic arguments on. Well, today we have to add a fourth element. He was either just an urban legend, so we've got to keep it alliterated because we're Baptist, so it still starts with L, so it works, right? So he was either a legend, a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. And so tonight we want to dispel the myth that Jesus was just <laughs> a myth. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about. To a Christian, it seems almost unfathomable. Uh, perhaps just unthinkable, to imagine a Christian with no Christ. I mean, it's just, it's, it's even hard to put that into context. From a biblical worldview, a life where no Jesus came, died, and resurrected leaves us, of all men, most miserable and still in our sins. From a Christian perspective, the greatest person to walk on this planet was when God became man and dwelt among us. He walked our planet. The greatest person to walk our planet was Jesus. You say, how do we demonstrate that? Well, think about this. We used to measure time B.C., (laughs) and now we measure time A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. How did a mythological character change the very way we tell time? That's an interesting question, isn't it? So some people just want to say, well, before the common era, BCE, and then after the common era, even in that. What made this era the common era? What was the whole revolution that changed that? F.B. Meyer wrote, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the center of human history. And he's right. To consider that Jesus was just a myth is almost impossible to believe that people actually live with that thought. But they do. So with that in mind, let's sort of look at the idea of What's at stake? And so you have handouts there. I've tried to fill in a lot of it so you don't have to listen for the blank. So sometimes when you hand out notes, people only listen for the blank. And once they write the blank, they feel like they've learned what they need to learn. So I gave you all the blanks. You can write what you want to add to it. That's the idea of the handout. The other idea behind the handout is that long after I'm gone, you can still go back. You can listen to it on the live stream, the recordings, the archives. You can read it, and you can digest it. Because, I, honestly, 
to be able to walk away and digest everything uh, in, in one 40-minute, 45-minute session is a lot to ask. It should be enough to motivate us, to fuel our interest, to give us confidence. But the other side of that is, okay, but how, am I ready to now share that with somebody when I'm asked? And so that's what the notes are for. I'd like to start off, before I even jump into what's at stake, I'd like to recommend one book to you. Uh, and I, I think in one of the handouts I give, I think I have a whole bibliography on it. If not, Pastor Kyle, I need, I need to probably share it with you. Just, it's just helpful books. But here's one that's not really apologetics, but it falls under the umbrella of it. The book is called Tactics. Tactics is written by a guy named Greg Kukul. I referenced him last night where he just tries to leave a pebble in someone's stone, a pebble in someone's shoe. That was the guy. Here's why I recommend that book. Because no matter how much we know, somebody always knows more. So I get the introduction, Dr. Mike Lester. And I'm like, great. Pull the pressure on me, right? You know? uh, but there's people who know more than I do. And I can either be intimidated by that, or I can I have a fear of ever stepping up to the plate and swinging, or... I can admit that there's some things I don't know, but at the same time say that just because you don't believe what I believe, I'm not going to just accept your assertion as fact. I'm still going to put the burden of proof back on you to prove what you are affirming without evidence. And so Tactics is a great book to help that. He, do you remember the old TV show Columbo? Do you remember that? So the, the bumbling detective who would sort of just... Uh, Walk around, oh, okay, you know, uh, uh, oh, oh, one, one other question, right? You remember that? And he would just sort of go through this. So in, in the book Tactics, he has what he calls the Columbo Method, where he just sort of goes through and, and somebody lays it out, oh, oh, now I, I understand. But, but, mm, this one, one little thing bothers me, you know, you can almost, if you watch the show, you can almost picture him. One, there's just this one little question I have, maybe you could help me, and uh, what are you doing? You're putting the burden of proof back on that person to explain their position. So it's, it's helpful, uh, and uh, I would recommend it if you, if you like to read. If you don't like to read, I'd still recommend it. Okay, good. All right, so let's define the problem. What's at stake if there is no historical Jesus? If Jesus never walked on this planet, if it's all a myth like King Arthur, so if we're going to put Jesus on the level of King Arthur or on the level uh, with the Easter Bunny or something like that, which is, or, or the fairy tales we learned as kids, if, if all of that's on the same level, what's at stake? God's plan of redemption has always been connected to a coming Messiah. As early as Genesis 3.15. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall. They immediately try to cover their sin by the works of their own hands, Right? Remember, they, their eyes were opened, they knew that they were unclothed, and so what they did was they went down to the local Walmart, and they bought fig leaves, right? And they took those fig leaves together, and with the, uh, the thread, and, and they stitched it together, and, and uh, Adam had on a suit with a tie made out of fig leaves, I'm sure of it, and then uh, uh, Eve had uh, probably a long flowing dress that covered her feet, and uh, it was all made out of fig leaves, right? You need to think about that. From Adam and Eve's perspective, they were covered, right? We were uncovered, but now, praise God for fig leaves, we're covered. From God's perspective, they still weren't covered because they had tried to cover 
their sin with the works of their own hands. That's as early as Genesis chapter number 3. What does God do? God takes an innocent animal and he institutes a principle that an innocent was going to die for the guilty. And the guilty would be clothed in the innocence and righteousness of this innocent animal. And so the fig leaves are removed and they're covered with coats of skin. And a great picture is put into the very early stages of the gospel. And then God says to that couple that from the seed of the woman, there's a great hope coming. We call that the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. One coming Messiah sent with authority. And when we study the Old Testament, the redemption is always linked to the messianic hope of a future coming king. We believe that the first man, Adam, tainted everything that God created and that everyone who comes from Adam has that same guilt. We've been affected by his decision. Even the animals behave differently after the choice of Adam and Eve. The land is different. Now there's thorns and there's thistles. I don't believe in the Garden of Eden there was poison ivy and poison oak and poison sumac. Uh, But now there is. And and there wasn't these thorns that uh, could one day be fastened into a, a very crown for the Messiah, but there is now. Christianity has looked for a man to set that all right again since the early days. C.S. Lewis, the apologist, was also C.S. Lewis, the fiction writer as well, right? And so most people, when they think of C.S. Lewis, they think of the Chronicles of Narnia. What the Chronicles of Narnia was was an allegory. And if you remember, if you read that as a kid, I read it often. I was weird like that. And so... In the books, here's what uh, Aslan, the, the Lion King, says. He teaches the people of Narnia that Narnia will never be right until a son of Adam comes and sits on the throne. Remember that? It's just sort of funny thing. What was C.S. Lewis alluding to? He was alluding to one day in the biblical Christianity, a future second Adam who would set everything right. This was built upon the idea of our redemption. So what's at stake then if there is no second Adam? There is no Jesus. Well, first of all, the plan of redemption uh, is full of holes. We can't be redeemed. Because what we're left to if there's no Jesus, we're left to all of us trying to do what's right in our own eyes to find a solution. And that doesn't work. There's no way we can be made right with a holy God when all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. If there's no historical Jesus, then the scriptures can't be trusted. And we just spent the last 45-minute session talking about why we trust the scriptures. But if there's no historical Jesus, everything I said in the last session, toss it out the window and let's go home now. If there's no historical Jesus, what else is at stake? We have no absolute authority. We don't have a final authority anymore. Eat, drink, be merry. Uh, Follow your hedonism. Follow your pragmatism. Follow your relativism because you have just become your own final authority if there's no Jesus. What else is at stake if there's no historical Jesus? There's no unifying concept for world history. Some people think of history like this. We're just in a cycle. We're just repeating it. 
And those who don't know history are bound to repeat history. And we think of history as a cycle. But biblically, here, that's not the biblical view of history. This is the biblical view of history. God created, and it's marching toward a culmination. When the God-man comes and sets up his throne in Jerusalem and sets up a kingdom. And that coming truth, that biblical worldview, unifies everything we see in history. But there's no historical Jesus. The unifying factor for 6,000 years of recorded history is removed. If there's no historical Jesus and Christianity is not true, then we no longer have a meaningful answer for the question of suffering and the question of evil. So could, could I just say it this way? If there's no historical Jesus, we are in a big mess. So what proofs do we have to show that there was a historical Jesus who walked among us? We're going to understand the evidence. But before I do, I want to set a little bit of a context to make sure you understand that just as I mentioned in the previous lesson, there are people today who have a bias against anything that is Christian. So, for example, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, hey, you're, you're, you're one of those who go to church, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know that Jesus wasn't real, right? He's like Santa Claus or something like that, right? You know, you know whatever, you know. And you say, well, wait, 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 wait. Uh, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? I don't understand the question. And what they're, what they're then turning around and trying to put you on the spot is to prove that Jesus existed, and then with this caveat, but don't use the Bible. Okay, now, and I want, I want you to think about that. Look, if you really believe Jesus existed, then there should be evidence for it. Prove it to me, but don't use the Bible. And what they mean by that is, I don't trust the Bible. So, see the previous lesson. What else they mean by that is, I know the people who wrote the book I don't agree with lived and were eyewitnesses of the man I don't believe existed, but I don't trust their witness. You understand what I just said? I don't want to hear from the people who were eyewitnesses because that disagrees with what I want to believe. So what do we call that? We call that a bias. There is a bias. So there's a presupposition that believes that people who willingly died for a belief in Jesus can't be trusted. And the eyewitnesses can't be trusted. It almost seems like any witness to the existence of Jesus needs to be questioned or held in suspect. By default, they're viewed as non-credible, even if they weren't believers, which is amazing. The historical evidence, just like judicial evidence, is founded upon the testimony of credible witnesses. So, here's where we're going to start. We're going to start with evidence number one, the New Testament writers. That's where I'm going to start, the New Testament writers. He said, no... They said, you can't use the Bible. I get that, but, but I am not going to surrender my final authority. Now, I've got other evidences, but I'm not going to surrender my final authority. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to say, no, wait a minute. And I said this in the last lesson. You're acting like the Bible came down in one book from heaven to our local bookstores. It's not. This Bible is a collection of separate books put together for our benefit. Can you imagine having to bring 66 different books to church. I don't know which one the pastor's preaching from today, so I just brought them all. You got your little wagon behind you. All right, and can you imagine back in your elementary uh, Sunday school classes, sword drills? All right, boys and girls, let's find uh, Romans 3.16. All right, Romans. Ah, Romans, that's Paul. Okay, Paul, Uh, Romans. 
Oh, it's a trick question. When Paul wrote it, he didn't have chapter and verses. Right? So what we need to understand is the Bible is a collection of books. So it isn't that the Bible says Jesus existed. Let's think of it this way. Matthew says Jesus existed. And there's another witness. Mark says Jesus existed. And there's another one. Luke says Jesus existed. And and there's another one. John says he saw him and he beheld his glory and he walked with him and he talked with him and he rested his head on his bosom. This John. And and then there's Peter. And and then there's Paul who saw him after the resurrection. And for convenience sake, all of those witnesses are put together in one source. You see the difference? So it isn't let's use the Bible to prove the Bible as much as we have independent witnesses that we can inconveniently check to see if they contradict each other in one place. So with that sort of mindset, the New Testament writers, let's take a look at John, the aged apostle. Long after the original group of 12 passed into the next world, John kept preaching. We believe John was the youngest apostle. John outlived every other apostle by at least 25 years, maybe longer. John, during the reign of Domitian, who became king after the emperor after he poisoned his brother Titus, who was there at the destruction of Jerusalem, Domitian heard about John and what he taught and sentenced him to death. Specifically, he sentenced John to death by being boiled alive in a cauldron of hot boiling water. He, so the, the pronouncement from Domitian with his uh, administrators behind him, I sentenced John to be boiled alive in this hot boiling water. That was the sentence. Well, the water was heated, it was tested, it was definitely boiling. John was put in, and John acted, for lack of better words, like he was in a spa. This feels great. Thank you. That's great for my back. It's been a long 90 years of serving Jesus. And he's just sort of, but he's not dying. And Domitian is upset. And Domitian, in a fit of rage, commands John to be removed and to be beheaded. And uh, for the one and only time, perhaps, in Roman history, the senators behind him say, uh, Sir, with due respect, the Roman sentence has already been passed. He was to be boiled alive. That sentence has been carried out. It's not his fault that he didn't die. <laughs> so instead, Domitian said, fine, I don't want to see him Let's exile him to the island of Patmos. And that's where John sees the revelation. That is our last book of the Bible. So John, this aged apostle, when he's writing to deal with some of the heresies that are coming out in the end of the first century, writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning which we've heard, we've seen with our eyes. We've looked at him, we've gazed upon him. Our hands, we've touched him, we've handled him. This life was manifested and we've seen it. We saw it with our own eyes. I'm bearing witness. That which we've seen and heard, that's what we declare unto you. You also may have fellowship with us. Truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what John is saying. I was an eyewitness. I saw him. I gazed upon him. I heard him. I touched him. John would have never doubted 
the humanity of Jesus or the existence of Jesus as an eyewitness. He was emphatic. I heard him, I saw him, I stared in amazement. In John chapter number 20, verse 28, Thomas, my dad preached a message years ago. It's funny, you know, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I I don't remember a lot of the sermons my dad preached. I, I heard them, but I don't remember all of them. There's a few of them I remember. One of them was titled, The Sunday Night Service Thomas Missed. And so there was the first, Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared on the first day of the week. And so my dad was just encouraging people to be faithful to church. He preached the title of the Sunday night service that Thomas missed. And then the next week, the doors being shut, Thomas there with him, Jesus appeared. And sees Thomas, who had said, unless I see him with my eyes and touch him and hand him, I will not believe. When Thomas sees him, Thomas makes that great statement, my Lord and my God. What changed? He saw him. He was an eyewitness to him. Uh, this is what we're talking about, the humanity of Jesus. By the way, when I say I don't remember a lot of the sermons I heard, that's not a negative. I've been married for 28 and a half years. I don't remember all of the meals my wife have, has cooked for me. But I do know this. I wouldn't be here had she not. In like manner, I may not have remembered all of the sermons I have heard preached in my life, but I wouldn't be here except for the meat that I was given at that particular time. And so, as we think about these New Testament writers, there's John, then there's, there's Paul. Paul, he describes in Acts chapter number 9, he was on his way to Damascus, not for vacation. He was on the Damascus road with the letters in his pockets from the priestly uh, high leadership, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, to search out people that were of the way, our forefathers, to put them to death. And instead... A bright light appears. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And Saul, the persecutor, became Paul, the preacher. Why? Because of an appearance of a real Jesus to him. Changed his life. Uh, Again, going back to other New Testament writers... James, the half-brother of Jesus, literally raised in the same house and rejected the message that his brother was the Messiah until something convinced him. Seeing your brother three days after he died has an ability to change your mind about some things. And so the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared last of all to James. He appeared last of all to Paul, but he appeared specifically to James. And that's when James came to an understanding that Wait a minute, all these things I've been hearing you talk about my entire life is true. And to James' benefit, it would not be easy to grow up uh, knowing that your brother was the Messiah, right? Uh, How would you like to hear Mary or Joseph say to you, Why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? You know, that would be be tough, right? Uh, So that's a a tough uh, standard to live under. But James became a believer. Why? Because he understood the claims of a historical Jesus. Matthew and Luke record the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew takes us back to David. Luke takes us all the way, and actually Matthew takes us back to Abraham. Luke takes us all the way back to Adam. No one denied the physical existence of a man named Jesus. The Bible in its entirety begins with the hope in Genesis 3 of a promised uh, man who would come. 
And then throughout the Old Testament, it gives hints about his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and then provides instructions to the community on how to prepare for his return. It is amazing then that Luke, one of the, one of the more prominent names that Luke uses to describe Jesus, Luke often refers to him as the Son of Man. There's a humanity there. He really existed. He had real flesh and blood. He wasn't a spiritual being that just appeared. He was a real human who walked this planet. Second line of evidence then. Let's move to the early Christian leaders. The apostles are now gone. So the eyewitnesses are gone. So the link between those who saw Jesus physically, that's gone And now you have those disciples of the original disciples and then disciples of the disciples of the original disciples. And and so what does the testimony bear out? Now, there's a lot of early church leaders we could look at. I want to look primarily at three of them. Uh, Origen uh, of Egypt, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Augustine of a place called Hippo, which is today modern-day Algeria. So sort of a snapshot of that known world from different regions So they're not communicating, like they didn't have text. Today, we communicate with people around the world. Just sitting over here an hour ago, I was texting somebody in Papua New Guinea. Uh, He's trying to get into our classes that start August uh, uh, the 21st. And so uh, we're just sitting here uh, on our phone, just sort of communicating. Halfway around the world, it's already Sunday morning there. He's getting ready for services. Uh, It's an amazing thought. That's the world we live in. That's not the world you guys lived in. Okay? (laughs) When one lives in Egypt and one lives in Jerusalem, they're never going to meet each other. It's just, it'd be very, very rare. And then when someone lives over in Algeria, forget it. You know, it's just, it just, it's just not going to happen. So, these aren't three collaborators trying to spread in unison a doctrine. These are distanced by time and distanced by geography, and yet their testimonies are virtually the same. So, let's think about these men. Uh, so, let's start with Cyril. He lived in the early 300s. stated strongly his view of the scriptures. In fact, he said this, Concerning the mysteries of the faith, not even a casual statement must be delivered without the holy scriptures, nor must we be drawn aside by mere plausibility and artifices of speech, even to me, who tells you these things. Give not absolute credence, Unless you receive the proof of the things which I announce from the divine scriptures. So that's a mouthful. Here's what he's saying. Look, guys, I'm glad you love me. I'm glad you trust me. But don't believe a word I say unless I give you chapter and verse. That's what he's saying. What else does he say? Concerning Jesus, he who descended into the regions beneath the earth came up again. And Jesus, who was buried truly rose again the third day. And if the Jews ever worry thee, meet them at once by asking thus, did Jonah come forth from the well on the third day? Hath not Christ then risen from the earth on the third day? Is a dead man raised to life on touching the bones of Elisha? And is it not much easier for the maker of mankind to be raised by the power of the Father? And he goes on, but the point is, what Cyril is teaching there in the early 300s is Jesus lived, he died, and he resurrected, Why is that so hard to believe when we have our Old Testament scriptures that talk about Jonah and Elisha and so many other things? Augustine, 
uh, lived in a similar time. He also had a high regard for Scripture. And here's what he said about Jesus. Now as to the resurrection of the body. Not a resurrection such as some have had that he came back to life for a time and then died again. But a resurrection to eternal life as the body of Christ himself rose again. Here's what Augustine was teaching. There was a Jesus in Jerusalem. He lived, he died, and he buried. He rose again, and he never died again. This is just what the early church fathers were teaching, that Jesus lived. He lived on the earth. Origen served in Alexandria, Egypt. With regard to Egypt, or with, I'm sorry, with regard to Jesus, who has both once risen himself and led his disciples to believe in his resurrection and so thoroughly persuaded them of its truth that they show to all men by their sufferings how they're able to laugh at all the troubles of life. What he's saying is, these men were so persuaded of the truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again on the earth. They were so persuaded by that that they laughed in the faces of all the persecution that the world threw at them, even to the point of death. So, we have biblical writers, we have Christian leaders. Let's look at a third source, Jewish sources. So these aren't believing sources. These would be people who would be antagonistic to uh, Jesus being the Messiah. So as we think about the early period of the church being established, uh, we can also look at the Jewish testimony as well. During the Jewish world, during the first few centuries, you were either a promoter of Christianity or a persecutor of it. There really wasn't middle ground. You either wholeheartedly believed that the Messiah came and that you needed to follow him, or you believed wholeheartedly that this was another imposter and you weren't going to be guilty like your fathers had been of falling after foreign gods or false gods and going back into captivity. You were just going to worship Jehovah only and you were going to keep the land pure by purging out these unbelieving people who called themselves Jewish. You were one or the other. Well, we've mentioned his name a few times, Josephus. Uh, he was descended from the Hasmonean family, which... Uh, if you know something about the, uh, the Jewish history, before the Romans took over, there was what was called the Maccabean Revolt. First and second Maccabees would found, be found in the Apocrypha. Uh, and so the Maccabees took on the family name or the royal name, the Hasmoneans. And Josephus was a descendant of that family line. By birthright, he was a priest. By his own account, a Pharisee. And he was a soldier fighting against Rome. He had a change of heart when he realized that Rome could not be defeated. He joined them. Vespasian and Titus became his patrons, which gave him a front row view to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. What does he say about Jesus? Well, Pilate, this is Josephus writing in his book Antiquities, Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, condemned Jesus to the cross. Jesus lived. Uh, again, the leader of the church uh, at uh, these different places, they, they all agreed with the fact that this was a literal person uh, who lived among us. Origen, who I just mentioned a moment ago, made use of the writings of Joseph, Josephus, though he was careful to show that Josephus didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In writing about the Gospel of Matthew, Origen said this from Josephus's book, this James was of so shining a character among the people on account of his righteousness 
that Flavius Josephus, when in his 20th book of the Jewish Antiquities, had a mind to set down what was the cause, why the people suffered such miseries, till the very holy house was demolished, the temple. He said, These things befell them by the anger of God on account of what they had dared to do to James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. And wonderful it is that while he did not receive Jesus for Christ, he did nevertheless bear witness that James was a righteous man, and the people thought that they suffered the judgment of God for what they had done to James and by extension to Jesus. Here's what Josephus is saying. There's this guy in Jerusalem named James. He has a really, really good testimony. If you don't know which James I'm talking about, he's James the brother of Jesus. And James the brother of Jesus was put to death by Pilate. In other words, this Jewish historian is giving us evidence of the fact that there was a historical Jesus. 73 AD, Mara, Bar Serapian. Bar is an Aramaic term that means son of. So Mara, the son of Serapian, wrote to his son in Syriac. He's a Jewish man. He's not a Christian. Taken prisoner by Rome. I said the date was 73 AD. So probably after the fall of Masada, which fell after Jerusalem. So he's taken prisoner. And he writes back to his son. Listen to what he says. This is a son in captivity who will probably never see his son again. But he's getting this letter off before he's dragged away. What else can we say? When the wise are forcibly dragged off by tyrants... Their wisdom is captured by insults. Their minds are oppressed without defense. What advantage did the Athenians gain by murdering Socrates, for which they were repaid with famine and pestilence, or the people of Samos by the burning of Pythagoras, because their country was completely covered in sand in just one hour, or the Jews by killing their wise king, because their kingdom was taken away at that very time. God justly repaid the wisdom of these three men. The Athenians died of famine, the Samians were completely overwhelmed by the sea, and the Jews, desolate and driven from their own kingdom, are scattered through every nation. Why? Because they put to death their wise king. Most scholars see this as a reference to Jesus. He's not saying he's a Christian, he's not saying he's a follower of Jesus, but he's connecting the judgment of God on Jerusalem to a death of an innocent man that claimed to be the king of the Jews. And he's telling his son, just like they were wrong to put Socrates to death, and judgment came, and just like they were wrong to put Pythagoras to death, and judgment came, so we were wrong to put this wise king to death, and so judgment has come. This is sort of a a Jewish reference, if you will. There's one more Jewish reference, and this is what we would call the Talmud uh, the Talmud is a, uh, a Jewish body of writings. And in the Jewish body of writings, again, it talks to us about uh, Jesus existing. Here's what it, specifically in the Babylonian Talmud, this is 500 AD. It was taught on the day before the Passover, they hanged Jesus. A herald went before him for 40 days proclaiming he will be stoned because he practiced magic enticed Israel to go astray. But anyone who knows anything in his favor come forward and plead for him. But nothing was found in his favor, and they hanged him on the day before the Passover. Now, it's only part of the story, and it's not accurate. But 500 years after the fact, the Babylonian Talmud was, trying to, was written to these people and scattered the diaspora, 
and was telling them that there was this guy named Jesus, and he was put to death. Some people claim he was the Messiah. And yes, he did miracles, but it wasn't because of God. He practiced it by magic, and so we put him to death. These are Jewish, indirect and direct references to the fact that there was a historical Jesus. Let me give you one more line of evidence. This line of evidence would be more of the hostile references, the Greco-Roman classical sources. They weren't always friendly toward Christianity at all uh, because they, they just couldn't believe. When, when I was in elementary school, I loved to read. and I went, I went to a public school, and so I went to our library, and I, I, I checked out every book on Greek mythology. I knew all the Greek mythology stories, Zeus, Poseidon, you name it. I, I knew the stories, and I finished everything in our library, and I got so excited, I moved on to the Roman mythology. And then I was so disappointed because the Romans were not creative. The Romans basically took all the stories I had just read and gave the gods a new name. Zeus became Jupiter, and uh, Aphrodite became Venus, and uh, Apollo became Mars, and, and so I didn't read all of those. And so then I, I tried Norse mythology and read about the god of thunder and these kind of things. But, uh, I, but, but in all of these things, that worldview was there, there's a god for everything. And then this Christian comes along and says, Jesus is Lord. There is no God but Jehovah. And this Greco-Roman mindset could not fathom how they could just dismiss all of these ancient gods and follow only one. It bothered them, it frustrated them, and they persecuted him for it. And as I mentioned last night, the Christians were viewed as atheists because of the way they denied all of these gods. First one on the scene is a guy named Thallus. He may very well be the first pagan or secularist reference of Jesus. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, the only reason we even know he existed is because his writings were quoted by others. His original writing hasn't even been preserved. Julius Africanus, writing around 221 AD, uh, mentions Thallus and the historical observations about an event that took place at the crucifixion. You'll remember this. When we studied the crucifixion, we remember that for the space of three hours, it got dark. And it was supernatural. It was abnormal. Uh, there was no eclipse uh, for that time. It was a physical impossibility to have an eclipse. This was a supernatural event that the world was left to explain. Christians could explain it. Uh, God turned his back on his son. God turned the lights out so the world couldn't see the hum- humiliation of his son as he died on the cross. God turned his back to show that the world was being judged and the sins were being judged on his son for the world. And there's a lot of ways Christians could, could deal with that. But, but if you're not a Christian... How do you deal with a supernatural event? The Bible doesn't deal with that because the Bible isn't addressing non-Christians. That's their problem if they didn't accept it, right? So the Bible just keeps going on with the narrative. But Thallus is one of those who's left with the pieces of 20 years ago, this supernatural event happened, and these people are still talking about it, and they're trying to ascribe it to something miraculous by their deity, and they're denying all of our deities. I've got to deal with this. So in the third book of his history... He calls this darkness an eclipse of the sun. Thallus, probably in the early 50s, was trying to explain the unexpected darkness of the sky as recorded in the Gospels on natural grounds. Africanus disagreed because he saw something supernatural as the cause. Look, the issue isn't whether or not it was an eclipse or not an eclipse. That's not the issue. What is important is that there was a crucifixion, the sky was darkened, there was a story circulating about why it was 
darkened. And Thallus is now writing back about what happened at this crucifixion of someone named Jesus. And he says, look, they want to call it supernatural. It was just an eclipse. He's not a friendly witness. He's a hostile witness to Christianity. But indirectly, he's saying there was a guy named Jesus who was crucified and the lights went out. Just like the Bible says. Tacitus, a Roman historian that I've mentioned previously, uh, in writing about uh, Nero's reign, Therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Tacitus lived 60 to 120 AD. He's, he's not a believer. What, what we notice is, he doesn't deny that Jesus existed. That was never, they may not agree with Jesus or agree with his teaching, but they never thought about saying, we'll just pretend like he never existed. That just wasn't even an option. There was too much evidence to the contrary to just say he didn't exist. He mentions as an identifier for the historical character that he was executed during the reign of Tiberius. And less than 50 years after the event, Tacitus, the Roman historian, is writing about how that growing group of Christ followers became Nero's scapegoat. Suetonius, again, I, I used this quote earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time with it, uh, but he's, he writes about how Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome because they followed one named Christ. Uh, again, a historical reference that he existed. We're not saying Suetonius believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. We're not saying that he accepted Jesus as his personal Savior. We're saying that he recorded that Jesus lived uh, and he was put to death and his followers caused trouble for Claudius, and they sent him out of, the, out of the city. Pliny the Younger also dealt personally with the Christians who were turned over to them, uh, and he said that they sang hymns to Christ as to their God. Uh, so uh, Thallus, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny, and there's this guy, Celsus. He lived during a time of Oregon, who I mentioned earlier. According to Geisler, the true doctrine is the oldest known writing attacking the Christian faith. But even that, Celsus doesn't deny the existence of Jesus. He doesn't even deny that Jesus did miracles. He simply says that Jesus didn't do these miracles through the power of God. He was just a magician. He dare not deny their truth. He doesn't really know how to account for it. So he's reduced to the necessity of allowing the power of magic. Uh, he had an acute mind. He was an intelligent man. He brought all of his logic to bear on a frontal attack on Christianity, but the book had little impact. In fact, it's doubtful we would have even heard of it had not Origen written an eight-volume response. <laughs> 1,800 years ago, Celsus brought forward the same objections as those now raised by modern criticism. The, cr the critique wasn't good then. It wasn't effective then. It's not effective now. Uh, so we have a couple of options. Our options, did Jesus exist or did Jesus never exist? When you look at the evidence, New Testament writers, early Christian leaders, Jewish sources, secular Greco-Roman sources, there's an abundance, a preponderance of evidence to, to substantially say beyond a reasonable doubt it was a historical Jesus who walked on this planet. To say that he was a legend or a myth is no longer an option left to us. So now we have to deal with whether or not he's a liar or a lunatic 
for the Lord, and we'll deal with that tomorrow. So here's the idea as we could have conclude this statement. Our first lesson last night was to show that God existed. But we also gave that with limitations. To use the argument that God exists, or really their arguments to show that there's a higher being or divine power. It doesn't necessarily prove that it's Jehovah who created everything. So we understand there's limitations to it. And so we, then we brought in the scriptures. And now we're connecting to, uh, here's what, this is, there's a God that exists. We know that the argument says there's a designer. Here's someone claiming to be a designer. Are, are the claims in this book trustworthy? Are they reliable? Are they credible? And, and they are. And now we're saying, is there any evidence for a Jesus who historically walked this planet, or was he a myth? And we're saying conclusively that Jesus was not a myth. But there's a limitation to that argument. To admit that Jesus is not a myth is not the same thing to say that Jesus is the Son of God. And so that's where we need to take this argument next, and that's where we'll, we'll get to tomorrow. So somebody comes to you and says, Jesus never existed. He's just a myth. He's a fairy tale. Try to keep a straight face. Try to be respectful, because we never win an argument by being, through sarcasm. So when somebody says, that to me, I, I usually say something like this. No, that's, that's an interesting and rather bold assertion. Notice the difficulty of this next question. What evidence do you have that he never existed? Think through that statement, that question. What evidence do you have that he never existed? There's no way to really answer that question. Well, I had a professor. No. I'm not asking hearsay. What evidence do you have that Jesus never existed? Oh, what evidence do you have that he didn't? No, I'll, I'll share that with you. But I'm genuinely interested in why you would make such a dogmatic statement that Jesus never existed. I'm just curious. What is the basis for that statement? And I'm just respectful. Many times, they don't have a reason. Often, they just hope it's true. Because if there is a historical Jesus who offers a plan of redemption, then to spit in his face and not accept that salvation, the alternatives don't look good. So to salve the conscience, you just live like he doesn't exist. But that's intellectually dishonest. Now, I've used historical arguments and manuscript argument, archaeological, and sometimes people, people don't always like that. But here's sort of where I come from. All truth is God's truth. And if all truth is God's truth, and if Christianity is true and the Bible is true, then it doesn't fear a challenge. There's going to be hard questions. If there were no hard questions, everybody on the planet would be a believer. There are genuine objections people have, but armed with the truth, we can take those objections away. So when somebody says, after they spit and sputter that there is no Jesus, and then says, okay, I'm genuinely interested in your position. Why do you say that there is a Jesus? Well, do you know that from the time of 35 A.D. to roughly 150 A.D., there are 18 secular historical citations, non-believing people, who mention the fact that Jesus lived, he did miracles, 
that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, that he was buried, and somehow his body ended up missing. (laughs) Those are just facts. Do you know that in the second century, these people who had so ardently believed in a historical Jesus and had their lives transformed by it made so many disciples that by the time we come to the middle of the first century, the church at Rome, their faith has been spoken of throughout the whole world. And by the time you come to the second century and the third century, Christianity is exploding over the entire empire, uh, even so that there are now converts in Caesar's household. And it's going throughout this whole known world. Do you understand that even Jewish sources that would rather Jesus not existed because it's an affront to them to think that the Messiah has already come and they missed him, so they would just rather pretend that he doesn't exist? So do you imagine then from that standpoint that if Jesus never existed, they would say, I don't have any idea why there's music coming on here. (laughs) Just like all of a sudden there's this music coming on here. But then when you have Jewish sources who say there's this guy named Jesus, He had a brother named James. They put Jesus to death, and then they put James to death, and the people believed because James was so righteous and Jesus was a good man that the judgment that came because of the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple was because of the way they treated this man. Do you know those other Jewish sources? that They don't want to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and they missed him, so they don't want to call him by name. They just called him the wise king. They recognized that the judgment came because they put their wise king to death. So whether it's hostile sources in the Greco-Roman, not necessarily hostile, but definitely not friendly in the Jewish, or whether it's friendly, or whether it's eyewitnesses, there's a preponderance of evidence to the fact that Jesus walked among us. Not to mention the fact, every time you write the date down, you are indirectly ascribing to the fact that there was a historical Jesus who made such an impact on the world that we changed the way Keep time. So I challenge you, never fear the challenge. Be armed with the truth. There's plenty of evidence for us to glean from. Lord, there is an abundance of evidence. Now, as believers, 